Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study on the life of Christ. I am really thrilled to be here. I've been out of town a few days, and I missed you guys. I missed preaching and teaching, and I'm glad. And you know what a great time to come back and get right into the life of Christ again. One of my favorite studies, of course, I mean, as a Christian, our favorite study should be the life of our Savior, right? You would you'd expect that. Uh, and I do love the study of Christ. I also love the study of the Apostle Paul and David. And I love the study of Christ because Christ is, is as the Savior, just so loving, uh, so awesome, so powerful, so holy. But I love the study of David and Paul because both of these guys I can relate to. Not that I can't relate to Christ, but to a certain degree, obviously, no one is God but Christ. And I believe that is why God gave us other character studies. Essentially, that's what you see in the Old Testament is the character study of Saul, King Saul, and David, and Solomon, Abraham. These are character studies. In the New Testament, you got the character studies of people like Peter and the Apostle Paul. And, and there's a reason I believe God didn't just say, here's the Bible, here's Christ, try to be like Christ. And, and that's a great goal. And we do need to be like Christ and strive to be like Christ. But at some point in our human condition, we recognize that's a goal I'll never reach. <laughs> like, that's not attainable. It, sure, it certainly keeps you moving forward because you can never get there. It's like the carrot on the stick, right? As you move forward, it just the carrot keeps moving. And so by design, I believe God says, I want to show you Christ because I want to see you what perfection is. And I want to see you how that perfection looks in human form, God in the flesh. But God says, I also want to give you others who in their imperfections were also used by me. And, and that's why I do love men like David, very imperfect man, men like the Apostle Paul, very imperfect man, and still used by God. Having said that, it is always good to go back to our roots, you might say. Go back to the foundation of what it means to be a Christian and to be reminded of how we got here. <laughs> And how it is that men, imperfect men like Paul, the apostle, and imperfect men like David, the king, could be used by God to do such great things. Well, the answer is Christ. Well, Pastor Russ, Christ wasn't in the Old Testament. I get that. But, the, but, but King David in the Psalms spoke of Christ to come. And King David was serving a God he has not yet seen, but a God he knew would arrive in the flesh, Jesus Christ prophesied of this king, prophesied of this savior, and the apostle Paul served a God and a king who already came and will come again. And so we're in the gospels. I've said now multiple times that this is a study of Christ in all four gospels, not just one. There are pieces of the story spread throughout all four of the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if this is the first time that you have started this Bible study with us, I'd recommend you go to our YouTube page, Meriden Hills Baptist. Go to our website, uh, MeridanHillsBaptist.org, or on Facebook page. Scroll down, and you'll see the previous Bible study, parts one, two, three, four, and so on. And, and definitely start the beginning as there is information given that kind of lays out what each book emphasizes on the life of Christ and what, each, what was the, the intended audience of each book. And that kind of opens your eyes to why the books are written in really different, not language, but almost, just the way they're written. It seems like uh, there is no unity. You'd say, well, this guy wrote this book, missing pieces, adding things. This guy wrote supposedly the same story. But when you read these stories, sometimes you're not even sure they are the same story. 
It's written uh, with so much more deep detail or written uh, with so much paraphrasing going on. You've got to ask yourself, are we reading the same story? Why? Because God wanted to give some accounts of Christ that were written to what you might call very learned men and women who, who expected uh, very detailed accounts. And then God wanted some accounts, some gospels, some books to be written that kind of just broke it down for the common guy, the common man, who wasn't really overly concerned about details. They just wanted to know the truth. They just wanted to know the facts. And then you got one of the books written directly to the Jews, the book of, of Matthew, where the Jews and their traditions are heavily involved in this book, and other books, other accounts written to the Gentiles, where the traditions of the Jews are not mentioned nearly as much. But when you look at all four books, you get the large picture. You get the whole puzzle, no missing pieces. And it sure is a beautiful picture. So we're going to move on now to our first event of tonight's study. Let's begin with Mark chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 28. There are multiple times in the Gospels where Christ heals someone who is demon-possessed. The, the most famous account would probably be the healing of the demon-possessed man in the graveyard. Now, by the way, we'll see later, there was actually two men in the graveyard that were healed. One account, one of the more famous accounts says one, and the other one says two. We'll, we'll get to that down the road when we get there. But right now, this is a completely different account. This demon-possessed man, he's not in the graveyard. This is not the, the one where the, the legion Right, the thousand, and if I'm not mistaken, Pastor John preached on that Sunday. I was listening to it from afar. He did a great job, and so that that is not this account. This is a separate time, and so in Mark chapter one and verse twenty-one, we pick up with our story, and they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath, of course, being Saturday, that was the day where people would gather into the synagogue for the reading of Old Testament scripture. And then there would be teaching and debates and conversations regarding Old Testament Scripture. And by the way, the Jews, their learning style was much more interactive. It would have been a whole lot less of like today where I'm speaking and you're listening and you're reading and shaking your head. And, oh, yeah, okay, I can see that. I understand writing notes. No, it would have been speaking, question, speaking, statement, conversation, speaking, and there would have been some leadership, sure, by the one who's standing up to do the teaching. But the, the men, and it would have been men, the men would not just sit there silently the whole time. You better believe they're going to be throwing questions and statements and, as we've seen, even accusations. And then Christ would be responding to those. Got to wonder, what, what tra- why the transition? Why is it that in the church we do see the Bible stating that it is through the preaching of the Word of God that the hearts are changed. And we do see that when preaching is done, there's not the interaction back and forth. In fact, I'll tell you this in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is preaching uh, and preaching so long that someone falls asleep, falls off, and dies. <laughs> Imagine that. I mean, that's really bad, right? Imagine how the Apostle Paul might have felt. But I'll tell you what, he fixed the problem. Uh, immediately after this person's falling off, what they seem to have been sitting on a ledge or some type of high location, <laughs> the Apostle Paul goes and, and raises them from the dead. So they, I mean, that's a great way to end the service, right? A miracle. But uh, can you imagine the awkwardness as the Apostle Paul preached so long that someone literally died from the preaching? 
So we do see evidence where there's a transition from the synagogue style of teaching, as we see here, where Christ would have taught, there would have been responses back and forth and questions, to the, the New Testament church where it looks more like this. I'm not saying there wouldn't have been any conversation, but definitely not like it was in the synagogues, a lot more one-sided. Why? Is one style better than the other? Is one more biblical than the other? Well, I want to point something out. Did you realize that the synagogues, these locations of teachings, these schools, these places where the Jews met to read Scripture, were never ordained by God? When I say ordained, I mean never established. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you see God commanding the Jews to have synagogues, central locations, where they met, read scripture, and taught. God didn't command that to happen. You say, well, Pastor Russ, well, then how was the teaching supposed to take place? Ah, there was a command. It was given to the fathers to teach their families at their homes. That was the teaching style in the Old Testament that God expected. Now, God did establish in the Old Testament holidays, or you might say holy days. In fact, there were a lot of them. (laughs) If you look at all of the holy days in the Old Testament, the Jews were celebrating. They had multiple holy days literally every month, multiple holy days. And during these holy days or Jewish holidays, they would have gathered together as a large group. Either the cities would gather together, or if you travel to Jerusalem, the whole town. I mean, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands gathering together on these holy days. And then there would have been a, a, a corporate reading of Scripture and a corporate teaching. We see that in the Old Testament where the prophets, they, they use that time to stand up and to teach during these holy days, during these holy Sabbaths. But that was not every Saturday that they did this. So basically, the Old Testament pattern for teaching was every week, in fact, every day, the Bible says as you rise up, as you go down, every day, but definitely every week on the Sabbath day, fathers were to teach their family at home. And then multiple times in a month, the whole city, the whole community got together for what you might call would look more like a church service where there's the singing, and the Jews would have danced, and they would have played music, and there would have been reading of the text, and then the the priests or the prophets would have stood up and taught and challenged the people. But that was not weekly. And then we find in the New Testament, out of nowhere, bam, there's synagogues, and they're now having teachings every Saturday, but it's not in the homes any longer. It's not the fathers teaching the families now. It's the spiritual leaders teaching everyone else in the synagogues, And I will say this, although God never commanded the synagogues to gather, Christ never belittled the gathering of the synagogues. He never called them out and said, hey, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. It seems like Christ not only was okay with it, but was involved in it, used it to his advantage, and went to these locations like here in Mark and read and preached and taught in the synagogues because the Jews were used to teaching and reading on Saturdays in the synagogue. So don't tell me that, well, the synagogue was the more biblical method because that was never a biblical mandate to begin with. The Gospels is just telling us what the Jews were doing, not what they were supposed to be doing. What we do read in the book of Acts is what God tells the first century to church to do, gather together 
and preach the word. That is commanded in the New Testament. So if I was to say one was more biblical over the other, I would say our pattern right now is the more biblical way. Gathering together, worshiping God, and the preaching of God's word. Not to say that the interactive style of teaching doesn't have its place. It most definitely does. And we as a church have tried to incorporate that interactive style on Sunday mornings in some of our life groups. We've kind of mixed it up. Some of our life groups, we have more of just the teaching where you listen, and some where it's interactive, so you can choose which style fits your need best. Some people really do just prefer sitting down, like, teach me, I want to take notes, and some prefer I want to talk. So we provide both here because both have their place. But then here on Wednesday night, of course, you, you know what it looks like. Here we are. I'm teaching and you're listening. And then Sunday morning main service, same thing. All right, so I've said enough about that. Jesus Christ is at the synagogue. We're in Mark chapter 1 and uh, verse 21. He goes to the synagogue and he teaches, verse 22, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Well, that says a lot about the scribes. What does that tell you? He, he taught differently than the scribes. But look at the, 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 the way they define his teaching. One who has authority, but not like the scribes. Now, there's, really, there's a couple ways you can look at that. Either the scribes taught like they didn't have authority, or he taught like a scribe, but didn't have the authority of the scribe. Now, you can, you can decide which way you want to take that. I think, what, I think that the, the truth of this is he's saying that I'm not saying the scribes didn't teach with authority. It seems they were very pompous men, very prideful men. I'm sure they taught with authority. But the way, the manner in which he carried himself didn't come across like a scribe, but he still carried the authority. You know, there are, there are ways to force people into recognition of who you are. I've always been a little offended, I guess you might say. I don't get offended easily, but I am offended by those who try to bully people into respect into honor. I mean, I feel like if you have to bully them to honor you, then it's fake honor anyways, so what's the point? But there's a lot of people who disagree with me, and that is the status quo in a lot of churches. A lot of men will bully their congregation, and there's our, there are churches with women preachers. I do not agree with women preachers, but there are those that have them, and there's ladies do the same thing. They will bully the congregation into submission, into respect, and I kind of get the picture. That's what was going on with the scribes. Like, these were bullies. And they had authority, but it was basically, you are going to respect me. And we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. But in the end, you will respect me. That's my impression of the scribes. Whereas Christ, it was, wow, like, we want to respect you. <laughs> Christ didn't have to bully them. The authority was there. And people offered it freely. It wasn't stolen from them. It wasn't snatched from them. But it's not just pastors that do this, is it? It's Christians. We, we as Christians in general, you know, we can be bullies sometimes. We can bully the community into respecting our religion, respecting our belief system. We can bully them into respecting um, who we are as Christians and, and what we claim to, to accomplish. We can bully them into that, or we can, like Christ, cause people to say, I want to respect you. Like the authority, I see it. I recognize that. I want to follow that. That 
is healthy. <laughs> that is godly. That is biblical. And why is it that so many Christians are in churches? And I'm not going to say they're not saved. I, I think there's a lot of people legitimately saved, and they're being led by bullies. How do they not see that? How, how do they not have their eyes open to this is not a healthy place to be? I, I can have some assumptions. I was never under a bully, so I can't tell you from personal experience what I did or did not see. I can only assume from what I know about human nature. The first assumption I make is this. If you have nothing to compare it to, and that's all you know, it's been normalized. You think this is the right way. Only later, and this is from my conversations with people that I've had over the years, only after they've experienced leadership that is not a bully and that, that, that almost causes you to want to give respect and honor, do you look back and then you compare it and say, wow, that was so unhealthy. <laughs> but that's only after you've seen something different. If you've never seen the difference and you grew up your whole life seeing this one style of leadership, you don't know any better. I think number two... This I do know, birds of a feather, right? Certain personalities attract other types of personalities. And there are those who know full well the pastor's a bully, but they have no problem with it. Why? <laughs> because they also are bullies. And wow, what a dangerous church to be in, especially if you are the sheep amongst the wolves and you're not the bully and you're the deceived one and everyone else is. Man, you are setting yourself up for a lot of pain, let me tell you. Because if the leadership, if they're bullies, and they're attracting bullies, and you're just too naive to recognize that, and you just think this is normal, only one of two things are going to happen. You're going to get extremely hurt and stay, or get extremely hurt and leave. Like, that, that's your only two options. But either way, you're going to get hurt when you're, when you're just surrounded by bullies. When you open yourself up to trusting bullies, whether on the pastoral side or on the layman side, the layman just being the common church member. Christ was not a bully. And that is why I love how Scripture points this out directly. He had authority, but not like the scribes had authority. And that's what I think we're reading here. I think that's what's going on. Verse 23, and there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. We're talking about a man who's demon-possessed. And he cried out, saying, let us alone. Now, interesting, uh, the the. The message John brought, Pastor John on Sunday, a thousand demons, where we don't see a thousand here. There's no name legion attached. But this man, demon-possessed by more than one, it's plural. Let us. That's a scary thought, that when you open yourself up to Satan, he doesn't just take a little bit. He takes a lot. And when Satan wants to park himself in your life, it's not like, hey, are you using this space? Can I have this closet? I'm not going to be a bother. I'm just going to be right here. I'm like, Satan's taking the whole house, all right? You ever had a house guest come over and you say, my house is yours, and they take it literally? Like, you regret those words? All right, you know, you've been a month. Glad to have you. You know, when are you leaving? <laughs> Sometimes a day can seem like a month. They just, they just like, start their stuff's lying all over the house. They, they mess everything up. They don't do any cleaning. I mean, it's just ridiculous. That's Satan. The guy is a mess. The guy is chaos, personified. And his demons are his little minions doing the same thing, bringing chaos. And not a little chaos, guys, a lot of chaos. 
Well, how do we fight against demons? And how do we keep demonic activity from coming into our churches and from coming into our homes and from coming into our lives? Well, some believe that, well, you you take some water, sprinkle it over your home, uh, bless it with the holy water and the demons. I don't know if it's like, you know, garlic to vampires. You know, the demons don't like the holy water and they run away. I'm not sure what exactly they're thinking with that. Others say, well, you, you bless, you, you pray on it. You pray on the home, you cast the demons out through prayer. Some literally, like, will open the door and say, demons, get out of here. And, you know, they're, like, you know, screaming at the demons to leave their home. You know, I don't see any of that going on here. Not at all. I'm going to jump ahead to another story that we, we read where there are some men. And uh, these men start recognizing the early church. They, they recognize the power of the early church. And they say, oh, we want to cast out demons as well. And they, uh, they see the works of the Apostle Paul and how God uses this man. This is the book of Acts, how God uses him to do amazing things. The Apostle Paul is casting out demons and raising people from the dead. And these guys say, wow, it seems like all you got to do is say the magic words. Because every time the Apostle Paul does something amazing, you know, it's like, in Jesus' name, in the power of Jesus. And so those are the magic words. If we say the magic words, it seems like everything bad goes away. So these, these seven guys, I believe they're seven, if I'm not mistaken, forgive me if I'm wrong. But uh, these guys get together, and they go to a demonic-possessed a, a demonic man, and they use the magic words. Get out of here, demons. Go. You know, open the door. Shoo. We'll go away with you. And literally, the demonic-possessed man says, I know of Christ. I know who Paul is. I don't know who you are. You have no authority over me. And we're told in the Bible, (laughs) this demonic-possessed man literally, like, tore these guys up. Didn't kill them. Beat them up. Whipped them. Kicked them out. And it was not the demon who exited that house. It was these seven guys who thought it was the magic words that would fix their problems. I'm greatly concerned for sincere Christians who think they can magic word the demons out of their house. We see a story in the book of Acts of how that works. It doesn't end well. If you really think that there's demons in your home or demons in your life or demons in the, in the, in the body of a loved one, Jesus Christ tells us the formula. We're, gonna, we're way ahead of the game. We're here in Mark chapter 1, but I'll jump ahead to the answer to that question because we're going to de- be dealing a lot with, with demonic activity through the gospel. So I'll just give you the answer now. Jesus says, through prayer and fasting, <laughs> through much prayer and much fasting, that is how demons are eradicated. Much prayer and fasting. So it's not magic words. It's sincere recognition, because that's the much prayer and fasting, sincere recognition that it is the power of Christ that eliminates demonic activity not us just saying his name out loud. Definitely not us shooing demons out with some kind of spiritual broom from our homes, if they are even in your home to begin with. It's prayer and fasting. Reliance on Christ, not ourselves, and not on even his name alone. Jesus Christ also says this to a man who's demon-possessed and the demons are cast out. He says now, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase, Get saved, be filled with God, because if you don't, the demons will just bring back more demons and fill up the space I just, I just emptied for you. <laughs> Basically, it comes down to this, that when there's empty space, there's a vacuum. Something's going to fill it up. Will it be, am I getting that door, Scott? 
Will it be spiritual things of holiness, God, Christ, or will it be spiritual darkness, demons, demonic activity? So if you are concerned that there is demonic activity in your home, fill your home with the things of Christ. Prayer and fasting, that's the answer, not a spiritual broom, not bullying the demons out of your house. You have no authority over them. They don't know you. They know Christ. Well, Christ is the one directly calling these demons out. They say, verse 24, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew Jesus was Messiah. The Jews who claimed to be spiritual leaders denied it. The demons never denied it. Liars, deceivers, this was a truth they could not deny. Look, when liars recognize the truth, how much more should we? So these demons say, we know you're God. We know you're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, not him the demon, him the guy, because there's more than one demon in this guy. He says, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with what authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits? And they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. It seemed like this is a pretty new phenomenon, this casting out of demons. It seems like the apostle, uh, I mean, John, excuse me, John the Baptist wasn't even really a demon slayer, you might say. <laughs> He wasn't casting demons out of people because they would have been used to it by now. This is, wow, this is new. I mean, we've had demonic-possessed people. We usually chain them up, throw them in the graveyards, or, you know, in some way uh, bunker them down. We just kind of ignore them because we can't do a thing with these guys. But here you are, Christ, casting them out. And by the way, look at verse 23. I didn't say this earlier. I need to mention this. Read verse 23. Did you notice it? Did you catch it? In the synagogue. They didn't bring the unclean demonic man to the synagogue. He was already there. Why wasn't he chained and bound in the tombs like, we, like, like Pastor John mentioned with that one situation? Because not all demons cause the same reactions. There are, I believe, different reasons, different deceptions, different motivations for what Satan and his demons do. And some are outright chaos, and some are sly deception. Not all of them are going to portray themselves in extremely crazy manners. It seems like, this is a guess, but I don't see these men of God allowing a demonic-possessed man in a very holy place for them, the synagogue. I mean, it's not the temple. I get that. I just don't see them saying, oh, yeah, demon-possessed guy, come and have a seat. You know, this is great. Let's have, let's have some time together. I, don't, I, don't, I can't picture that. I think this guy acted normal until Christ pointed out, you're not normal. And then when Christ pointed it out, everyone's like, what? I mean, you know, John, what, John? You know, James, whatever his name is, What? Especially when the guy started talking and when the demon starts talking through him, then there's some really craziness going. Can you imagine the creepiness you would have felt then? Especially if you knew this guy. And then the guy has the demon come out of him. 
And I guarantee you there's a personality change because demonic possession is going to affect your personality. And it's like, wow, we thought we knew you all this time. What we really knew was the personality of the demon in you. And then this guy's like a changed man. It goes to show you that just because someone's going to a place of worship, you might say, doesn't mean they are worshipers. Just because they've been there and go there every week doesn't mean they belong there. In fact, there's some parables about that, right? The wheat and the tare is one of them. And Christ says in the parable that there is wheat representing the Christians and there are tares representing the unsaved. And the angels come to God and said, should we cut the tares out so that they don't strangle the wheat, essentially, and take away the fruit and and the, the nutrients and the sun and the water from the wheat? And God says, nope, don't do that. You do that. You might cut away some of the wheat as well along with it. Let's wait till the harvest is there. And then, you know, we'll separate them at that time. So God is basically stating, church, there will be people among you who do not belong. You know what breaks my heart? People forget that parable, and Christians say, well, I don't go to church. There's hypocrites there. Well, duh, Christ said there would be. Why are you shocked about that? Don't tell me something I already know. (laughs) Don't tell me something 2,000 years ago Christ warned us about. Yes, there's going to be hypocrites in church. Yes, there's going to be people who don't belong there. Yes, there's going to be people who hurt you. Christ said there would be. Well, why doesn't God get rid of them? He gave his reason in the parables. He says he will down the road. He's not going to do it right now. And by the way, some of those fakers eventually become the real deal. Unfortunately, some of the real deal leave because of the fakers. Don't leave because of the fakers. Recognize they're there. They will always be there. And realize it was never about the fakers anyways. It was always about Christ. Keep your eyes on him. All right, so the demon-possessed man, uh, the, de- the demon is taken from him. I want to take a look real fast, Luke chapter 4. I'm not going to read all the verses. I put it up here so you can see the comparison contrast between the two texts, speaking of the same instance. But I do want to read verse 31. Came down to Capernaum, city of Galilee, taught them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his, word, at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Verse 22 says he taught with authority of Mark chapter 1. And then in verse 32 of Luke chapter 4, we're told he preaches with power. I love that. Preaches with power. This idea that the spoken word can move someone in powerful ways. We have examples of that literally Every day, if you are willing to read the news and and get outside your bubble and see what is happening across the world and read what people are doing and what the spoken word is doing to people in both good and bad ways, you'd recognize how powerful the spoken word is. The spoken word can be used for great evil or for great good. Just the other day, I I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, the Ukrainian president Skyped in, video conference call to the EU. I'm not a fan of the EU, but regardless, he Skypes in in some manner. He's, you know, obviously in hiding. Russia's overthrowing Ukraine at this point, trying to take over that country. And from what I read, I didn't see this speech. I read about it. The Ukrainian president, when he was done, I believe the speech was like a minute and a half, like no more than two minutes. It was a pretty short speech. When he was done, every member supposedly was standing ovation to this man. And by the way, the Ukraine is not even recognized in the EU. 
Ukraine nation. Russia is. Ukraine is not. Ukraine has been trying to be in the European nation for some time now. There's been issues, I think, uh, mostly dealing with corruption in their earlier days from the 90s and so on that have kept them. And I think Russia being a powerhouse also never wanted Ukraine. That's political. I'm not going to get into it tonight. The point is this. A man who's not part of the group, <laughs> a man who's part of a country that's been ostracized for decades, stands up and through just a short couple of minutes uses words to move people who for decades have ignored them to a standing ovation just through words. That's my point tonight. I'm not trying to get political. Words are powerful, especially words of truth. Christian, you have more power than you know. Yes, there is power in prayer, and we need to use that. Yes, there is power in love, and we need to use that. Yes, there is power in a strong, biblical, holy testimony reflecting Christ. We need to use that. But there is power in the word of truth. So powerful. You don't have to be Christ. You don't have to be God for the power of truth to move people. When you take the word of God and speak it to people, even common man and woman, you and I, even we common folk, can see movements of people's hearts, minds, and souls through the powerful word of God when spoken. All right, that's Jesus healing the demon-possessed man in the synagogue, by the way. Again, different, different places from other times he heals those with demonic possession. Let's go to, um, we're actually in Luke. Let's just, let's just stay in Luke. We're in Luke. Let's go to uh, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 38. There's multiple instances of this story. I'm not going to look at all three tonight. I'll mention them. Matthew 8, 14 through 17, and Mark 1, 29 through 34. But we're in Luke chapter 4. So after the healing of the demonic man, Jesus Christ is called, it seems, by Peter to go and heal his mother-in-law. So uh, verse 38. And he rose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon, that's Peter's house, and Simon's wife's mother, so that's Peter's mother-in-law, was taken with a great fever. This is a major fever. Now, I've had a fever before, um, and we're not talking, you know, the, the man fever of 99.5 who thinks he's going to die. I mean, I'm talking like 101, 102. Those, those are not fun, all right? Past 101, you're feeling pretty bad. I, I don't have any memory of like 103-plus fever. I've talked with people who do, and that is... Like, that's really, really bad. You're like 103, you just feel like death. That's what I think's going on here. This is not a, like, she has a 99.8 fever. I mean, this must be an extreme fever. She's like, feels like she's at death's door. Her whole body's just, like, aching extremely all over. And back then, medicine being what it was, I don't think as many people came back from fevers like this back then that they would today with, with the the advances in medicine that we have. So the family would have been very, very scared for, this, for their mom and Peter for his mother-in-law, knowing that many people who have this level of fever usually die. Like they don't survive the night, they die the next day, stuff like that. So she's, she's heading towards death, basically. That's kind of what is implied here by a great fever. And so Jesus, we're told, uh, is besought. They besought him for her, the family of this woman, comes to Jesus and says, please, will you, we know you're the miracle worker. You're, we know you're a great man. Will you come and do something for her? Verse 39, I love this phrase. He stood over her and does what? 
rebukes the fever. <laughs> That's great. I mean, the fever has a personality now, right? No, it doesn't, obviously. But didn't Jesus rebuke the wind, who also doesn't have a personality? And he says, peace be still. Jesus can rebuke whatever he wants. It doesn't have to just be people and demons. Jesus has power over everything. And everything, even inanimate objects, even germs, even viruses, even these microscopic things going on in our body, they respond to the voice of Jesus. Wow. You know, the Bible's not going to uh, go beyond the science of that day and say Jesus rebuked the virus. You know, Jesus rebuked what caused the fever. He rebuked the fever, but we, we know that basically he's rebuking the illness. That's amazing. That says a lot. There's a lot of people uh, who call themselves healers. I'm not a fan of self-proclaimed healers. I believe most, I'm going to leave the word at most because I can't know. I'm not God. I'm not all-knowing. But I do know that most, if not all, of what has been shown me as healing is, can be proved very easily to be fraud, to be a scam. I just saw one the other day. So there was a video posted on social media of a woman whose arm is deformed, and she's in some kind of, it seems, Middle Eastern or African um, city or state. I, I don't know. There's just, just a video. And people are chanting and praying, and this preacher's throwing water on her and praying, and her deformed, broken arm goes straight to what looks like a normal arm. And, I mean, there's thousands of comments. Praise the Lord. This is amazing. This is great. See, God is the great healer, and wow, this pastor, this healer, he's the real deal. Just do a, just bare minimum research, come to find out there are, there are videos and recordings of this woman going from church to church doing the same thing. Healed multiple times. It's a scam. She broke her arm and was able to learn how to, through the, the unmended, unhealed brokenness of her arm, make it look transformed and then make it look straight. And she would get paid by these so-called healers <laughs> to do the gig at their church. And, of course, the deal is if you're a great healer, people give you more money to heal them or because they want you to just represent Christ more. So these guys get rich off of scams. And that's what I tend to find from just bare minimum research of these self-proclaimed healers. And so I'm not, I'm not a fan of self-proclaimed healers. I will say this about these guys. You know they often do? They often call out the demons, right? It's almost every time like there's a demon of illness in you or a demon of sickness. That's what I found. I'm not saying every time, but it seems like that's the case, and they're calling out the demons. Jesus is not saying, oh, you're ill, so you have a demon. Oh, you know, you have a fever, there's a demon. Oh, broken arm, you're a demon. No, Christ is, no, it's a fever. Let's, let's rebuke the fever. <laughs> let's call out the fever because that's the issue. I mean, people are trying to spiritualize illnesses even more than Christ did. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, going, you're way off the deep end when you're going further on the spiritual realm than Christ himself, okay? And yet, I, I, this, I almost, it's just shameful to say, but there are those who believe that even certain um, conditions, like autism, are related to demonic activity. There are spiritual leaders who have the audacity to state, audacity to claim, that those who struggle with these mental health issues, extreme issues of autism and so on is because they're demon-possessed, and let's call out the demons. I don't see that in Scripture. These guys are going way too far with their theology. It's dangerous. So Christ calls out the fever, 
rebukes the fever, fever, and of course, of course, the fever is going to respond, just like the wind responds, just like the demons respond. Christ is master of all. But this, <laughs> this is where you get a real hint into the family of Peter. Verse 39, he rebukes the fever, it leaves her. What does this woman do immediately? Ministers unto them. What does that mean? Feeds them. Maybe she's washing their feet. She's gathering, gathering, gathering together the family to clean the house. Jesus is here. This house is a mess. My goodness, we can't have Jesus here looking like this. Kids, go wash your hands. Scrub your faces. I mean, the woman was on, was on death's door five minutes ago, and now she's commanding everyone to get the house in order because Christ is among them. That's the family Peter's attached to. That tells you a lot about Peter, right? <laughs> tells me a lot about Peter. And that's what he, who he married, uh, uh, this woman's daughter, which I'd imagine is similar to her mother. They, you know, women often are, not always, but often are. And so he heals her, and she gets to work immediately. I, by the way, you know, we kind of jest. Is that really such a bad thing? Is it a bad thing when Christ does an amazing thing for you? Your first thought is, I want to I return the favor. I want to serve him. And I think that's actually a beautiful picture of how we should be. When Christ does amazing things for us, our first response ought to be, how can I serve you in return? Not to thank you for what you've done. There's what level of thanks can this woman give? What level of service can she do to match the miracle of basically her coming back from death's door? There's nothing she could do. I think that the service is not thankfulness. The service is an act of love in response to what Christ did. Thank you, yes, but I'm doing this because I love you. All right, our next story tonight, Jesus continues teaching. Now, you're going to see a lot of, of slides that, that kind of in some way state this, Jesus teaching, teaching on the mount, continues teaching, teaching abroad, because we're, that's going to be scattered throughout the Gospels. Yes, there are moments of action where Jesus is healing and, and Jesus is, is uh, uh, doing amazing things, miracles, like, like walking on water and rebuking the wind. But scattered throughout the Gospels, in between these moments of action, are deep moments of theology where Christ is teaching. And we don't want to miss those. I don't want to go through the life of Christ and only see what Jesus did. I want to listen to what Jesus said. So we will take time to park when Christ teaches and evaluate what is he teaching. Now, of course, I could spend a well over a year on a series covering just what Jesus taught, and I don't plan to do that. So when we come to the teaching of Jesus, there will be much paraphrasing and, and much summarization of his teaching, maybe hitting on some of the main points, covering quickly all the points or most of the points, not going deep on every point. If you want to go deep on the teachings of Christ, you have to wait till that's done on a Sunday morning when I would cover that topic maybe. But we just don't have, this is not the setting where I would go to the, to the level of deep theology that you maybe would expect whenever we come to the teachings of Christ. So we are still in Luke. Let's just stay there. Luke chapter 42. I'm sorry, I'm sorry chapter 4, excuse me. Verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him. And came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. For therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Jesus 
didn't come to invest in only one group of people in one region. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And I know, and I cannot expect all of them to come to me, so I'm going to go to them. So Jesus spent three years traveling up and down, not just one region, the northern region of Israel, but central and southern regions as well. Because Jesus wanted to bring the gospel to them. Now, I can't blame these guys, these Galileans, from saying, please don't leave us, stay here. I'd want them to stay here too. But I love the heart of Christ where he says more people need me. And that should be the heart of the church. Christian, it's easy for us to stay where we are appreciated. It's easy for us to stay where we are loved, where people are begging for more time with us. But others need the truth. Why would I go out there and give the truth to people who hate me when I can stay here and give the truth to people who love me? Because they need the truth just as much as we need the truth. That's one reason. Because the heart of God is just as much for out there as it is for in here. That's another reason. Let me give you a third reason. Because here, we've heard the truth. Out there, a lot of them have not. And we need to hear, get the truth that we have, and bring it out there. And I'm not just talking Meriden and the surrounding areas. I'm talking other countries, other parts of the world. As a church, I recognize our funds are limited, our ability is limited, our impact is limited, but not shut off. Well, we can't reach the whole world, so we'll reach none of the world. Well, that's not the heart of Christ. Let's reach some of the world. And if every body of believers, if every church reaches some of the world, guess how much of the world actually gets reached? All of the world. So let's reach some of the world. And let's ask God, which part of the world does he want us reaching? Now, we know it's Meriden, and we're going to do that. Above and beyond Meriden, where from there, God? And let's do it. Christ said, I can't stay here. There's other places that need the truth. I want to go there, too. And then our last lesson for tonight, Jesus heals the leper. Now, we are going to go to a different part of Scripture now. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. We've been in Luke most of the night. We're going to jump back to Mark now. Although this story of the leper is found in Matthew 8, 2 through 4, Mark 1, 40 through 45, and Luke 5, 12 through 16, I do want to look at other gospel accounts and kind of see their style of writing uh, as we go through the story of Christ. All right, so Mark chapter 1 and verse 40. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, this is Jesus, to Jesus, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. God, if you're willing, I know you can. That, that is my prayer for all healing. It is not God you must, because I do not command God. It is not God, I know you can, so I know you will, because that's not true. I know he can. It doesn't mean he will. This is my heart, this leper. God, I know you can, if you will. That's what I pray. I'd recommend your prayer life being the same. Don't command God like a genie, but don't doubt God's power either. 
recognize his power, but recognize his sovereignty. And his sovereignty doesn't answer to your will. Your will answers to his sovereignty. God, I know you can. Will you? Verse 41, Jesus moved with compassion. And by the way, the reason I'm encouraging you to pray like this, guys, because look what it resulted in, right? He said, I know you can. Will you? Jesus is now moved with compassion. Put forth his hand, touched him, and saith unto him, I will. Not I can, because his power and ability was never doubted. His will, he says, yes, I will. Be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Straightly, he straightly charged him. Jesus charged the leper. Forthwith, sent him away. And saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priest. Offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Jesus, still living in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, had not yet died, had not yet uh, broken the old covenant, or I guess I'm saying broken, not broken, completed would be the better word. Had not yet completed the old covenant and presented the new covenant, so he's still living under the old covenant and expects this leper to do the same. He says, according to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, when you have leprosy and you're healed from it, you need to go to a priest and get their stamp of approval. That was the local health department. <laughs> and so he says, do that. Go to the local health department. Make sure you're healed. I know you are, but you've got to follow through with what is right. Go do that. But, he says, um, don't tell anyone else. Verse 44, say nothing to any man. I don't want you publicizing this miracle. Why not? I mean... Isn't that what preachers essentially preach all the time on a regular basis? Go tell, tell, tell it on a mountain. And we sing it, we preach it, we hopefully live it. Didn't Christ tell the church to go and preach to all nations? Seems kind of counterproductive, Christ, for you to do a miracle and then try to shut it down, brush it under the rug, and, and pretend it didn't happen. What's your reasons? Christ didn't give them. He didn't explain to this leper why he should not go tell. He just said, don't go and tell. What does the leper do? Goes and tells. Verse 45, but he went out and began to publish it, not just a little, much. I mean, like he's like the dream of every pastor. Like he gets saved and now everyone in the community has got to hear. Like he doesn't stop talking until everyone's heard three times the story. You think that's a good thing, right? Well, in this case, it was not. Christ knows better. Christ knows all. What reason could Christ have had for keeping this silent? We're never given a reason, but we are given a result. And I think the result implies the reason. Let's take a look at the result. Verse 45. The leper goes out, talks a whole bunch about what happened. So much, it's a... to to blaze abroad the matter like a fire. So that that word blaze abroad has the the idea like everyone's talking about it, even those who've never talked to the leper are talking about those who did talk to the leper. It's on the lips of everyone. In so much that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. 
Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows the heart of man. Jesus knows the results, which is why we are wise to follow his command even when it doesn't make sense. What You know, God, you don't want me telling people what? That doesn't seem like it comes from you. Hmm. I think I, uh, God, I think I know better on you uh, than you on this one. I think, I think I got a leg up on you, God. I mean, I know you said that, but I, I've been around a while. I know what you want, even though you said this. You want this, don't you, God? This leper thought he knew better. He thought he knew better than Christ, the very one who healed him. The leper had faith. He said, I know you can. This is not a heathen man. This is not a guy who doesn't believe Christ is the Messiah. I, I think that this guy trusted Christ, is a believer, but then failed to follow Christ's command. And look at the result. Christ could no longer be in the city. Well, isn't that a good thing? I mean, there's such a revival I mean, so many people came to faith that he couldn't enter the city. Like, that's a good thing, Russ. That's not what it says here. Not like Samaria, where they said they believed. No, he couldn't enter into the city because everyone wanted to see him. Can you guess why? They wanted to be healed. This was not people saying, we believe and we want to meet the Messiah. This was, we're sick and we want healing now. They wanted to use and abuse Jesus for his miracles. We already saw earlier, uh, last time we were together, where Christ is not overly impressed with people who just want him for his miracles. And that's what happens here. Christ is in the city to give theology. Once the city finds out about the leper, they don't want theology. They want experiences. They want miracles. They want healing. They don't want truth. That's not a good result. And that is the only hint we have to why Christ would have said, don't go and tell. Jesus is pressed outside the city. People come from all abroad. But again, I don't believe it was for teaching. I believe it was for healing. If you go to chapter 2, verse 1, again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house, and straightway many were gathered together. And if you read on, you'll find, what are they there for? They're gathered together to be healed again. Now, Jesus is going to take some opportunity to give some truth. We're going to see that in verse 5. We're not going to get into it tonight. Uh, verse 5, and then again in verse 8, he's going he's gonna to get some teaching in. He's going to get some truth in, but it's not a whole lot. And it could have been a lot more. Because healing takes care of a temporary physical condition. Truth can change your eternity. And you know what's unfortunate? This leper preaching when Christ told him not to might have resulted in people getting healed, but going to hell when they died. We'll never know. I'll never, this side of eternity, we'll never know. But it's likely people went to hell. Yes, they got healed. But died and went to hell because they didn't hear the truth. Because everyone made such a big deal about Christ's miracles, that's all they wanted. There was little teaching going on. When I tell you the heart of Christ, I guarantee you, was to be given the teaching. Which is why I think he said, don't do it. You know what's funny? We're going to end with this. This thought. What do a lot of churches focus on? Experiences. They don't necessarily say that, but that's kind of what they advertise. Come here for the experience. Come here and you'll experience something amazing Sunday mornings. 
come here and you'll experience something amazing during you know our revival services, the week-long worship services. And, and they're pushing and they're advertising and they're selling experiences. Now here's, here's the neat thing about experiences. When you've experienced something personally, it means something to you. And you get more excited about experiences, and you probably will tell others about your experiences. And so it really does do the job well. It's a, it's a surefire way, by the way, to grow a church. I said this years ago when I first became lead pastor. I told the church, guys, I, could, I can grow this church in numbers, but th- there, are, there are methods, there are things that could be done to get people in the doors, but I'm not interested in that. And one of them is selling experiences. Now, there's different kinds of experiences you can sell. The one that I talked about, the fraud with, you know, a fake woman being healed and, and going from church to church, that's a major experience. I mean, you sell that kind of experience, you better believe there's going to be people uh, who are easily conned, yes, but people who are in the building. They're, it's going to fill up with a certain type of person. Uh, you, you can sell exp- a, a, a supposed worship experience. You could sell that, and again, you're going to fill up the building with people looking for this experience. And it intrigues me. How much the 21st century church wants to sell an experience, and yet I see Christ doing the opposite. Christ selling truth. You, and I, I say selling, but, you know, Christ giving truth, not trying to sell an experience. Here's the thing about Christ. When, you, when, you, when he gave truth, you learned what you really needed to know, and guess what came along with just being around Christ? Experiences were part of being around Christ. But Christ wasn't selling the experience as the, the main motive of his ministry. Being around God will result in some awesome experiences. But that wasn't the thrust of the ministry of Christ. It was truth. It was teaching. And so many churches, we got it all wrong. We're trying to sell experiences. And what are we doing? We're filling up with crowds of people who actually don't want truth, what do they want? Well, they want experiences. And they're going to come here. I say here, whatever church that is, because that's what you're selling. <laughs> and boy, there's a lot of excitement. And the pastor and the people say, well, the church has never been packed like this before. This is amazing. Oh, sure is. You know, so much so, like, you know, you're, people are in the hallway and people are outside, like this story we just read. Christ can't even get into the city because there's so many people. But they're not there for truth. The people are there for the experience. Well, but Pastor Russ, if you give them the experience and then preach the truth, they'll hear the truth. I get that. I understand that. You know what happened with Christ? The deeper he went in truth, the more people he lost. That a lot of people who were there for the experience were told, you're going to see this later in the Gospels, he got to the point where his truth was so hard to hear, we're told that pretty much everyone who was following him it doesn't say for experience. It had to have been for experience because when truth was given, they left. So all of these followers of experiences, when hard truth was given, they walked out. And then Christ looked at the disciples and said, well, you guys leave too. And Peter says, where will we go? You're the one that holds truth. So the apostles were there for truth. But a lot of these other guys were there for experiences. Shame on us as Christians if we're trying to sell an experience. Knowing Christ being around God, that's experience enough for me. I don't need to sell that. That will just happen naturally. What we need to have as a motivation is truth. And let the experiences fall as they may. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word and the chance to be in it tonight and for what we learned. I pray we'll take to heart 
the truths that we saw from these texts, that we could live them, not just hear them. In Jesus' name, amen.